Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I have another Tom with us this morning, Tom Eubank. Tom, good to have you, man. Good morning. So Tom was with us back in the winter as one of the platinum sponsors from the Row Crop Short Course, but in the meantime, he has changed careers, I guess. Maybe, I don't know if career is the right word, but Tom, why don't you take a second tell folks what you're doing now, and then we'll tell them why you're here this morning. Yeah, so I'm uh, now the farm supervisor and agronomist for the uh, Nutrien Innovation Farm in Winterville, Mississippi. For those of you not familiar with Winterville, Mississippi, that's just north of Greenville. So uh, it's actually about, what, two miles from your house, maybe? Three? About three. Yep. So right there, Short close commute. to Tom's house. Most of y'all know Tom. Tom was with us for uh, many, many years here at Stoneville, did all of his graduate work here uh, as well. And so the thing that Tom worked on extensively when he was in grad school was horseweed. And I guess you did both of your degrees working with different facets of horseweed control. Horseweed has seemed to make a big resurgence this year, and we'll get into that in a minute. So Tom, I, I told Tom Allen, man, I got <laughs> You're going to have to like point at the two yeah, of us. I, I told Tom Allen that I don't know anybody that knows more about horseweed then the other time, we thought that was a he would be a good resource to get on here and talk about that particular weed problem. But Tom, before we start, I know you got a lot of livestock out there at your house now, <laughs> and we came and visited. We brought our kids out. I don't know three or four weeks ago now and visited, and you got a lot of free range and chickens. Yeah, chickens not known to be a highly intelligent animal. What is the silliest thing you've ever seen a chicken do? Oh my! Probably herd snakes. I mean, they, uh, <laughs> if a snake comes into the to the house, they'll gather around it uh, just like a crowd of of terrorists or something, and they'll just sit there and they'll just fuss at it. And uh, I, I think the snake gets as confused as as they are. But uh, chickens are pretty interesting uh, creatures. They uh, they'll eat a lot more than just seed. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. It's it's. Sometimes it can be kind of disgusting about some of the things they'll, they'll eat, but uh, I'll leave it at that. So we can only imagine he's referring to chickens eating chickens, Tom. Huh. I didn't realize they were a cannibalistic <laughs> free well, range. He didn't elaborate, uh, so I was just letting my Yard bird. Well, let let's, let's just say the reptilian that. species. They, uh, they, they seem to fancy frogs as much as a grasshopper. Huh. Well, that's better than chickens eating chickens. So, Tom, we really brought you on because... Clearly, as Jason had mentioned and, and you had indicated, horseweed has made what we would generally consider to be a resurgence this year and certainly is appearing to be a bit more problematic. And that's, you know, Jason and I discussed talking about some of the more troublesome weeds and really kind of wrapping that back around and revisiting herbicide resistance because I think that's a really good time to start talking about that. But why don't you walk us through, at least initially, some of the reasons that horseweed may be coming a bit more observed uh, in the last few months. What, what has played into that in a biological sense? That's a great question, and I, I too have observed a, a fair amount of horseweed uh, uh, resurgence uh, this year. And you know, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is, is horseweed is somewhat unique in that it's a windblown seed. It is a very small, really minuscule seed when you look at it, very, very delicate. And 
it if it gets into some significant wind, it can go a extremely long way. Um, so it's it's not inconceivable that some of the horseweed that we're seeing today in Mississippi may have come from Arkansas, maybe even you know further away, just depending on you know what kind of winds we've had and the drier the conditions. The, the better the travel is going to be. So every wind that comes along, that seed may be have deposited on the ground from a, la- a previous wind event. If we didn't get a rain event to germinate that seed, the next wind that comes along picks it up and moves it even further. So I think the drier, milder winter that we've experienced this past year, coupled with the significant wind events, you know, we've had some pretty significant Man. wind events this year, um, and throughout the, the winter months have caused or maybe contributed to a lot of the horseweed that we see in the fields. And so even if a grower maybe had done some fall cultivation, which usually cultivation is a very effective practice in, in, in the fall for emerged horseweed, uh, if that seed was deposited in January, February, March, April, then most of those residual herbicides, if they did apply any residual herbicides, they don't have the longevity to control a, a weed seed that, that blows in three months after the fact. There again, you know, back to the biology of it, a horseweed, it is primarily a, a winter annual. We consider it a winter annual weed. So it primarily comes up in the fall and in, in early winter, like much like Italian ryegrass does, henbit, those type species. But one thing that's unique about horseweed is it it can continue to come up throughout the growing season. And again, that's something that I've pondered post-PhD research. You know, we, we did a lot of emergence studies looking, looking at patterns of emergence. And I've thought about after the fact that maybe some of the, the emergence that I saw in the spring may have actually not been seed that was already there and just lying there for, you know, in a, in a semi-dormant state for a long period of time. But maybe it was actually wind-blown seed that came in after the fact, and we were just calling it spring emergence. Well, I know we've gone and chased it for a field to do plot work in, you know, and identify a good one this year. It's like, all right, we got, we're going to get that field and do plot work there this winter and then not get any. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of the, that seed blowing away. So, I mean, I think that's a legit possibility. Another thing I've heard you say and, and probably Poston say when he was here, y'all have documented emergence like 11 months out of 12 in mm-hmm. some years. Yeah. Yeah. When we were doing, for some of my master's work, we were looking at patterns of emergence, just trying to figure out when it emerged. And, and we saw just, again, similar to, to ryegrass, with the exception of the hottest, driest, you know, months of, of July, um, we've seen emergence from August all the way through into to May and, and even early June. So it really just depends on the, the conditions. It's not a very robust seed. Again, it's, it's a very, very small seed, and it doesn't have a, a tremendously thick seed coat, but again, that helps it to aid in the, you know, the movement of the seed. I keep going back to the fact that I think a lot of this is just maybe seed being reintroduced and moving around at, at different time frames. Some of the studies that uh, VJ Nandula and I did looking at seed depth, once you planted it deeper than a quarter of an inch deep, it wouldn't emerge. I mean, it's, it's a surface emerging seed. It's not going to be something that's going to survive long term if you're, if it's buried deep into the soil. So again, the, 
I think the wind blowing component is a piece that we may be not taking into consideration. So for those of you listening, I know the majority of you haven't ever seen a horseweed seed, but a lot of people talk about pigweed seed and how small a pigweed seed is, and that's a fact. Pigweed seed is really, really small. I feel like, Tom, horseweed seed maybe is a little bit bigger than a pigweed seed, maybe not much, but it's got a little bit more material to it, like a seed coat or something. But then it also has basically a sail attached to it. You know, that would be called, a, in biology, would be called a pappus. Yep. But it's it's basically a sail is what it does. So that's how it gets up in the wind mm-hmm. and blows around. What type of soil does it prefer? Does it prefer bare soil or can it emerge on just about anything? It could emerge on organic matter. No, it's uh, so American burn weed is a similar type species. It's a windblown seed, same Asteraceae family. It's unique that it can emerge on organic matter, and it will actually send a radical through the organic matter before it actually penetrates the soil. But horseweed has to be on the soil surface to, for it to germinate. But again, if if it's very deep in the soil, it, it won't it won't germinate. It's just it's not a robust seed from from that standpoint. Jason, back to your your point there. I think pigweed. It's got a more durable seed coat on it, um, and we know how well it disperses with yeah. even without the aid of of an akeen or a poppus that you know helps to, to aid in wind. But it static electricity can pick it up on the bed of a truck and, and move it down the highway. And the same thing would apply to, to horseweed. It could it could get on equipment. It could get you know in the dust and just move around. You mentioned herbicides, Tom, when you were talking about the emergence. 2021, 2022, where we're sitting right now, we did have the opportunity in a lot of large part of the Delta to get a lot of fall work done, which we prefer, and our soil textures mostly lend to that type of strategy. We also did a fair amount of fall herbicide work, which we also like to do. Talk about, one, fall herbicides, but then, two, I feel like, a lot of our fall herbicide programs recently have targeted ryegrass. And, you know, back down the line, Dr. Poston and you, you know, y'all kind of pioneered that fall system in Mississippi, but it was for horseweed. And then we took that strategy and, and related it over to ryegrass and have gone from there. And then we, certainly we have general purpose treatments that we put out. I might feel like a lot of our more recent treatments, you know, over the past few years, the years we've been able to get a lot of fall product out has been with ryegrass in mind. So just tell folks your history with fall herbicide work and horseweed. Horseweed is, again, predominantly it comes up in the fall of the year. And so fall burn down practices do a very good job of controlling that weed. And the research that we did Pretty much any herbicide with residual activity would control horseweed. Again, it's it's a it's pretty easy to control with residual products. Dual, atrazine, metribuzin, those type products, Valor, you know, do a good job on, on horseweed. The problem is a lot of those herbicides aren't don't have the residual longevity to control something like horseweed for an extended period of time. And that's where we saw the ALS chemistries really having more long-term efficacy so the classics the invokes the staples those type product first rate those type products that brought a lot more longevity so 
part of our recommendation program was to, to, to use something that was both short-term that maybe could help on, on ryegrass, but also have something in there a little bit longer-term like an ALS-type product like the Invoke or, or Classic in there to, to give you extended residual on into the into next spring. Back to your original comment, I, I think the focus has shifted to, to ryegrass predominantly. Dual is metolochlor-type products are very, very effective on, on ryegrass, and they do, it does have activity on horseweed, but again, I think maybe it's begin, the longevity and residual efficacy is not there to, to keep us clean all the way into spring, and that may be what we're seeing with horseweed resurgence. And combine that with the, the windblown component and the possibility yep. that the seed's moving around even in the wintertime, right. too. Well, and combine that with a situation whereby you didn't receive an incorporating rainfall in a proper amount of time. Yep. Well, and that's always a problem, whether it doesn't get incorporated or we get a treatment out on a bed that's not quite settled well, or you get a little bit of rain and not enough rain because the bed's unsettled. I mean, that's just kind of the cost of doing business with those fall treatments. But then again, your rainfall reactivates those herbicides too and, and keeps them, them active. You know, you don't want the soil saturated, but you need periodic rainfalls to kind of reactivate the herbicide that's there. And we had a pretty mild winter. That, that's just, I was going to say, we were, we were under in rainfall for the, for the winter months that would move, that, that at least mm-hmm. that I'd looked at October through March or April, if I'm not mistaken. And it's been a few weeks or months since I've looked at those data, but that, that was pretty unusual in this part of the country. Yeah. That was a pretty prolonged period of time where we did not receive ample rainfall yep. that would have likely benefited in that situation. A thing that I've thought about with horseweed, but then some other species as well this year, and we've talked about these species on here off and on over the past several months, but you, know, you take horseweed, henbit for sure. I mean, we're, we're beyond henbit now, but then the more recent questions that I've gotten about Plains Coreopsis and of course, yellow crest where it's been a problem, but then Virginia pepperweed, just unbelievable. If you think about the weather we had during the winter with the fall burn down, and I, I've said this often, I mean, we were off and running, man. 2022 was setting up beautifully for burn down when we entered 2022. And then we got a lot of field work done in that middle part of February and then just went in the ditch. And so I spent several weeks talking about henbit, and then I did the late ryegrass stuff, and then later on I got into these non-traditional species, I guess. They've always been there, but we just, they were dying as a consequence of doing something else. So I wonder if a lot of these late problems that we've seen, horseweed included, is stuff that emerged after, either in a case where we had a fall burn down that maybe that residual dissipated and, and wasn't long enough to carry us through that rainy period in March and April. Or an early burn down went out in January, February, and then this has emerged after. Yeah. And I don't have any way of knowing that, but it's just I've struggled to explain these somewhat unique weed cases we've had in 2022 and beyond well, it was warm in December. I think that absolutely factored into it, but that's not the simplest yeah. explanation. And I think, again, that this weather pattern that we have kind of threw us 
you know, a curveball because to Tom's point, you know, it was pretty dry all winter long. We didn't have a lot of winter weeds out there in the field in in January and even into February until it started raining. And then when it started raining, all the winter weeds just began to, to flush up. All the residual herbicides we put out last fall. So we didn't, at least from what I saw, we didn't do a lot of the January, February burn down with Valor or extended residual herbicide treatments because we thought that it was going to be clean enough up to planting time. Combine that with the the availability of herbicides. I mean, there was a time frame in January, February that nobody had Roundup on the floor. So there wasn't a lot of burn down going out just because it wasn't available or it was going to be so expensive that guys were just saying, hey, I just hope I can get to planting and then maybe do something then. And then you had a paraquat shortage and, you know, (laughs) so it just kind of a perfect storm type scenario is is what I think is it just a lot of this stuff came up in February and March, spring emerged, and we just weren't expecting it. Some of our more traditional timed spring treatments, so say March 1, March 10 type treatment, a lot of that got delayed. I talked to a guy not too long ago. He was in the North Delta where it's been wet, but you know he'd had a treatment on his books for six weeks, and they were just now getting it out. You get delayed six weeks after the first of March, and man, yep. stuff's changing a lot right. in that period of time. We've got horseweed out there now. Let's take a second and, and go through some control scenarios in crop. A lot of lay-by has already gone out on corn, but... Just say hypothetically we've got a cornfield that's got some horseweed in it and we haven't laid it by yet. What would be your preferred treatment? The auxin chemistries are typically what we recommend if it's less than six inches tall. You know, most of the work that we did back then, if it was less than six inches, 2,4-D and dicamba, you know, we're, we're fairly effective in controlling it. But once it gets into the bolt stage, if it gets into that 8, 10, 12-inch growth stage, even auxin chemistries won't control it very effectively. So your options are very, very limited at, at that point. If it happens to be a, a Liberty-tolerant corn hybrid, Liberty is still one of the best post-emergence options for horseweed as far as, you know, effective control. When you put Liberty and atrazine together, it, you get that synergistic activity. I've said a couple times in the last week, particularly last week when the temperatures were higher than what they are this week, but hot temperatures and Liberty, I don't know of a better big horseweed product and that doesn't mean it's going to kill it yeah but you're probably going to get a higher level of control with that than anything else that's the problem just like with ryegrass you know once it gets big we're severely limited in our control options post-emergence and so there's a lot of effective products both from a residual standpoint and while it's still small or in the rosette that are effective but once it gets into that bolt stage it's severely limited you know, in soybeans, you do have, the, again, that option of dicamba if it's an extend crop or 2,4-D if it's an enlist crop, but not, not going to be as effective. Uh, Liberty would be a better choice if it enlist or extend beans or Liberty link beans. First rate, still a viable option. We have not observed, to my knowledge, you know, significant ALS resistance yet in horseweed. There is ALS resistant yeah. horseweed in the country, but I've never known of any here. But we've also, it's just not been a weed that we've prescribed a tr- treatment specifically for in recent years, just yeah. because it's, we've usually picked it up doing something else and it has not been as severe. The infestations haven't been as severe. You know, that's still the, 
the standard treatment, first rate in soybeans, and then in cotton, invoke is still a viable option, but you've got to be up to that fifth true leaf in cotton before you can go over the top with invoke. Yeah, I feel like cotton is the one where extend and enlist have broadened our options because yeah. prior to those, cotton was the one where we were really limited. I mean, yeah. unless you had cotton where you could put liberty on it, then you were basically out yeah. of it after that crop came up yeah. until you got to the invoke stage, which is a pretty extended period of time from planting until we get to that fifth true leaf. So, again, probably not going to kill it, but at least you can throw it for a loop for a little while and maybe get your crop up and going. Yeah. Did you ever do any competition-type work, Tom? So what is the yield penalty associated with a horseweed infestation? Yeah, we did. Um, we, we did some competition uh, studies in corn, soybean, and, and cotton, and um, it was highly variable. Uh, it was so variable that I didn't even put it in my – my dissertation just because it just we couldn't find what that point was that where we were seeing significant yield loss now severe enough infestations you know it yeah it it can be pretty significant impact on yield but horseweed's not near as competitive with corn as as ryegrass is it's not nearly as competitive with with beans and cotton as pigweed you know palmer amaranth is so it's still an issue. It's certainly something we need to, to be mindful of and address because any weed is robbing nutrients and sunlight and, and competing for, for, for space in the field. So definitely something we need to try to, to manage. But to me, ryegrass and Palmer amaranth control trumps horse, horse weed control. What about like in-season tillage? Does any of that help at all? It can. You know, that I've seen the old you know, nobody plows anymore, but if, if you're pulling a middle furrow sweep for, for irrigation purposes, it'll dislodge a horseweed plant. It, it doesn't reroute like ryegrass or pigweed has the potential to do, so it's very susceptible to tillage. Most of the time with a middle sweep, you're only, you know, sweeping yeah. eight inches. You're not sweeping the whole middle. I think the priority for controlling horseweed, like you said, it's it is taking up nutrients. It is taking up water. It is shading if it's already bolted and big, tall plant on your young emerging crop. But then, two, this time of year, priority is just keep it from making seed. And we don't like to spray something and not kill it. But if you can keep it from making seed, which is what I talk about a lot with ryegrass, at this point you can't completely kill it. But if you can keep it from making seed, then you're going to be better down the road and down the road being next year. Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly uh, it would warrant someone going out and mechanical removal, you know, a, a hoe is still a good thing to keep in your truck and remove, you know, isolated plants from the field if, if, if it's a small enough population. But one thing that you and I have harped on a, a lot in the past is horseweed, ryegrass, the ragweeds, those are all early transition weeds, and they usually start on the turn row in the ditches. So don't just get tunnel vision looking at your row crop Look outside that, too. Look at the ditch banks. Look at the turn rows. Mowing is a very, very effective option for reducing, you know, weed seed populations. So ryegrass, horseweed, pigweed, ragweed, all of those that are on the ditches and turn rows, you know, put a mower out there or, or use some kind of means to, to try to manage that as well because that's where horseweed is going to come from locally is is from those ditch banks. Tom, we appreciate the favor, and, and obviously it's great to have you back. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add or talk about or highlight about what you're doing now in your new role? I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to come and, and certainly look forward to continuing to, to work with Mississippi State University Extension Service. Um, you know, part of my role is, like I explained, is as an agronomist, part of my role is educating and training sales rep that are coming up within our company. So I'm certainly see the, the value here that, uh, again, the Mississippi State does to, to disseminate information for us to take and, and apply that in a field environment. So uh, it's all about learning at this point. You know, we're all at a point in our career where we, we've seen a lot of things. We've, we've learned a lot of things over the years. So now it's time for us to begin to, to give back and for this younger generation coming along. So that's that's kind of what excites me about this job is I'm going to be essentially an educator in a large, you know, sense. I'll be doing research, but it'll be demonstration and education too. And that's, that's really what at, at the heart of it, that's what I've always been as an educator. Well, an exposure and getting those younger scientists or younger retail individuals into the field to show them some things. I mean, that's something a lot of times I, I try to do as much as possible when they call. I'd rather be in the field looking at something with them to point things out because plant pathology isn't such a great put the slides up on the screen and talk about. There are a lot yeah. of things that you miss doing that. So it's yeah. it's nice to have somebody in your role that has our direct contact information and we still stay in touch with you so you're not you're not shy about kind of pushing people our direction which i think is helpful and will be helpful and beneficial in the future not only for us but for the retail outlets in this general area tom thanks man always pleasure it's good seeing you and we appreciate the continued support from from everybody in the area and the continued listeners i mean this is something we're enjoying doing and it's it's definitely we think timely information and important if you need us for one-on-one -on -one consultation you know don't don't be shy pick up the phone track us down we're pretty easy to get hold of thanks the mississippi crop situation podcast is a production of mississippi state university extension 